This stool ain't comfortable. I was afraid of that. I think I'd like the one you're on. He's as changeable as a prairie fire. Suppose you tell me where to sit. That ain't too much. Your friend's a very argumentative fellow. Sort of unpredictable, too. Got a temper like a rattlesnake. That's me all over. I'm half horse, half alligator. You mess with me, and I'll kick a lung out of you. What do you think of that? No comment. You know, talking to you is like pulling teeth. You wear me out. You're a yellow belly jap lover. Am I right or wrong? You're not only wrong, you're wrong at the top of your voice. Oh! Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And before we get into today's episode on Bad Day at Black Rock, uh, we have a guest, and and not just any guest, uh, a, a guest uh, of which we have both been guests on his podcast before, and uh, a thousand and one by one is very proud to bring you Mike Emmel. Mike, how are you doing? Mm, who's asking? Uh, well, I am. Hmm. You seem like a big man. <laughs> I'm just. I'm trying. I'm trying to be coy. Hi, guys. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks for being here. Um. And so, so Mike runs a podcast called Cinemus. Uh, it definitely follows a similar format in that it also uh, talks about films out of the book, a thousand and one movies you must see before you die. Mike, do you want to just chat a little bit about your podcast for a sec? Yeah, it's a it's a pretty lateral move, like you said, because we're pulling movies from the same book. Um, very slight differences, actually, because the, at the end of your guys' show, we're we're asking similar questions. You guys are asking, does the movie that we're covering this week deserve to be in a thousand and one movies you must see before you die? So you guys are working with that very finite thousand and one number. We're taking a similar approach, but we're asking, hey, does this movie deserve to be considered a movie that absolutely everybody has to see? So I get a, I get a little more leeway because I can go beyond a thousand and one movies, but really similar approaches. We're discussing movies. We're debating on if they're movies that everyone should see, if they're maybe only for some people, or if everybody could just give them a hard pass. And we're just putting it on listeners to decide for themselves, does this movie deserve to be on the list of absolutely essential cinema? Um, so we've been on a bit of a hiatus, unfortunately, for a long time. But as of the time this episode drops, we are back in action. I think the movie that's going to be out from us the week this episode drops is going to be Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter. So if anybody uh, who's listening is interested, after we're done with this episode, you can pop over and find Cinemus wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, today our poll is going to open up to decide whether The Night of the Hunter is a movie that absolutely everyone should see. So you should check us out on any of those social media platforms. Well, spoiler alert, I'm voting yes on that. Night of the Hunter is a fantastic piece of cinema and probably Robert Mitchum's best performance. I, I had a hunch you'd say something like that. I'm really excited to talk about it. And these are both yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, Black Rock and Night of the Hunter. They're both 1955, aren't they? Excellent year. Um, well, I'm excited for that to drop. Uh, I, I own the Criterion and haven't seen it because that's just what I do. But I, I will definitely try and give that a viewing before listening to, to your newest episode. And oh, thanks, um, Ian, can you I just I forget what were the two, uh, two movies you talked about when you were on? Uh, we did a, a British horror double feature. We did Wicker Man and Don't Look Now. And I'm I'm warming to Don't Look Now a little more than I did uh, when oh, we recorded good. the episode. Yeah, and uh, and then I went on and I got to talk about uh, I talked about Pulp Fiction and Memento when I went on, which of course for me I was just giddy as all hell because those are two of my favorite movies of all time. So yeah, that was that, great. those were both great episodes, and my brain still hurts from uh, the one I did with you, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know we were juggling a lot of timelines there, so I'm not I'm not surprised to hear that we're still still trying to find out where the hell we are. <laughs> 
Well, awesome. So great. Yeah, please check out Cinemas. It's great. And I love when when we can be guests and when when we can support each other because we're, you know, we're we're pretty much talking about the same movie. So that's that's fantastic. Okay, cool. So Bad Day at Black Rock. We're not quite there yet. As we always do, we're going to bring you some recommendations. Mike, as our guest, we would love it if you would go first. Oh, thanks, guys. Um, so my recommendation, uh, this is pretty similar to a feature I have on Cinemus. We'll do um, a double feature section where we pair up the movie we're talking about with any other movie for like a fun Friday night double feature. Um, and if I was going to do one with Bad Day at Black Rock, I picked Clint Eastwood's third d- movie as a director, High Plains Drifter. I freaking love this movie. I hope I didn't steal it away from either of you. Um, Really similar, Stranger rolls into town, uh, and the town obviously is harboring a very dark secret, but the stranger himself has a dark secret. Um, Really great 70s western. I'm a a big fan of the Clint Eastwood run, and I think this is actually like my favorite movie of his. Mm, It could be Unforgiven, but um, it's really underrated. I think it's also in 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. Uh, but freaking amazing ending, and Clint Eastwood is just stoically the best. I love it. That was quite a contentious episode for Adam and I. Uh, that was within our first ten, I think. Was that episode four or five? Uh, no, four. I know for sure was Stalker. Uh, but it def- yeah, it definitely was in our 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 first ten. Um, and it was it was absolutely a split episode because I was not a big fan. Of Dragon's Drifter, although I feel, I, I feel bad, I missed that one. Oh no, no, no worries. That was that was we were way early on. Um, but it's funny. I definitely got High Plains Drifter vibes uh, when I was watching this. So so I I totally get where your your recommendation is coming from. I'll I'll just leave it there then, so I don't like uh, <laughs> open up old wounds. Oh no no no! It, it, it was. It it wasn't like uh, when we were talking about like the Quiet Man or anything. Like we we Ian Ian definitely had a lot of great things to say about it, and I had I think I just had more questions than like concerns. But it just it, it wasn't wasn't my cup of tea. It is one of those movies. It does leave a lot of things open ended, which uh, is something I actually really like about it. Well, awesome! Not only do we get hey, not only do we get a recommendation, but we get we get a plug for checking out an old episode of ours. So fantastic! <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Um, Ian. Would you like me to go next? Yeah, please. Okay. Um, so I, I won't lie that between the title of this movie and um, when I saw like the first image of it, I thought this was more of a, of a Western than it, I would say it actually is. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm, I, my recommendation doesn't quite fit with it, but you know, it's good enough. Um, and so I decided to revisit um, a Western that is hard to uh, hard to say is good, but it is damn entertaining. And and my recommendation uh, this week is Tombstone, um, which I unfortunately made my wife watch, who who did not like this movie. Uh, but that's okay. She doesn't she doesn't have to like everything I show her. She she doesn't frequently. Um, but uh, so yeah, Tombstone. You know, come on, Kurt Russell playing Wyatt Earp. Val Kilmer, Doc Holliday, um, you know, Powers Booth, Michael Bean. I mean, this is really a who's who of just amazing character actors. Uh, and, you know, Wyatt Earp comes back into town with his two brothers, played by uh, the late great Bill Paxton and Sam Elliott. They're trying to start like a, a mining kind of uh, operation. They're not trying to, you know, get get into law. But, of course, they get dragged in, um, you know, much to their chagrin. And, um, you know, it, it's not really a movie about great performances because, you know, Kurt Russell is just, I mean, he is just going for it. Um, but I think Val Kilmer's pretty good. I actually really like Michael Bean in it too. And, uh, I don't know, man, this is just one of those like nostalgic, like I know it's not great, but as soon as it was on, I was, I was in. So, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of like amazing things to say about it, but it is entertaining. Like it's hard to, to not just find it kind of mesmerizing in a, in an awful way. It's like watching a car accident. It's like, I can't not watch it. So <laughs> it's not, it's not that bad, but that is a really good way to describe it. It is not the best Western, but those nights where you're like, I kind of feel like watching a Western. I want something really entertaining. Like, you're going to reach for Tombstone a lot more often than most of us are willing to admit. I love well, it. Any movie that has the guts to end with the line, Tom Mix wept. <laughs> well, and even it, if... It is one of those... No, go ahead, Ian. It, well, even if Melissa didn't dig it, I think you've got two guys here who are willing to be your Huckleberry. Oh, thank you. Oh, I need, I need that, too. 
Oh man, yeah, and I, I just, and there's also a lot of great behind-the-scenes stuff with it about you know kind of who ultimately directed this movie, which I find interesting. Um, but that I'm not going to take the time to, to to launch into that. But I mean, just go on an IMDb deep dive, and you can read about a lot of the kind of behind the scenes, you know, who actually made this movie. Um, but yeah, Tombstone, uh, also kind of a, a quasi tale of revenge and redemption and all those great things. Um, I, and you know, yeah, it's a great, like beer in hand, like just, I'm just going to shut off my brain and, and, and watch the carnage and, and, and quite honestly, the overacting, which I enjoyed in this movie. <laughs> yeah. That's a part of its charm actually. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Ian, why don't you take us home? What is your recommendation? So before we started recording, I confess that I was up a little late last night and I'm a little slow going this morning because I was up watching Hang 'em High, which is my first viewing of that movie. It's been recommended to me by a handful of people. Um, I'm not going to use it as my recommend on this episode simply because I, I would like to rewatch it and I think I was slightly underwhelmed by it. So my recommend uh, with Bad Day at Blackrock is, I mean, I don't think there's such thing as a British Western, but I think this is a film that can that's as close as we can get to a Western in the UK. Uh, it's called Dead Man's Shoes from 2004, a little film by Shane Meadows. Even if you don't know his name, you might know uh, his most famous film, which he did after this, called This Is England. So uh, Dead Man's Shoes uh, was written by uh, Shane Meadows and Paddy Considine. Paddy Considine stars in it as a sort of disaffected British soldier who returns home to the British Midlands to avenge the death of his uh, mentally challenged brother, who's uh, played by Toby Kebble. Uh, it was an early performance from him. And I think he plays uh, mentally challenged very, uh, very sweetly, and, and it's not over the top. It's, it's played very, very delicately. Um, and it's just, it's it's actually more akin to something like There Will Be Blood in, in its tone. Um, and as far as like the standoff scenes between the guys who pushed his brother into hanging himself. And uh, Considine gives one of the most intense performances I've ever seen in a British film. He was actually uh, highly awarded for it. The Empire Magazine gave him an award for it. And he was even, uh, I believe, BAFTA nominated for it as well. Um, it, it lost uh, uh, BAFTA for British film to My Summer of Love, which I've never seen, but uh, it sounds really interesting. It's it's a movie that I'm... Uh, we've talked about movies that we're kind of jealous of if we were filmmakers, the type of films that we would want to make, and this is definitely on that short list for me, something akin to, to Brick, which we've talked about numerous I times on the show. I knew you were going to say Brick. I knew you were going to say Brick. <laughs> but there's, there's these great long stretches without dialogue and shots of the beautiful British Midlands and... Considine is just terrifying in it. He's got a moment which uh, the reason I relate it to There Will Be Blood is it, it, there's a scene that almost feels like the standoff between uh, Eli and, and Daniel Plainview where he stood in front of the leader of this gang of thugs and, and drug dealers and he opens up his palm and he goes, you're right fucking there. You're in the palm of my hand. I was in your house last night and I was this close to cutting your throat. I'm watching over you. It's just... It slices straight through you, and it's a, a real must-see. I believe it was streaming on Netflix there for a while, but uh, you can definitely rent it on Prime and iTunes and all those other places. Great. Right. That sounds great. Yeah, I, I, I am familiar with This Is England. I haven't seen it, but I know that, I mean, I, I, I can remember, like, the campaign for it. I remember seeing posters for that movie. Um but yeah, I, for, I, at first, when you first started, I, even though it didn't make any sense, I thought, I thought you were going to say Dead Man. And talk about Jim Jarmusch's yeah. film, but I was, I was, I was. That's not what happened. I, I do uh, really cool. love Dead Man, though. That that is a that is an interesting film. That is a I've only seen it once. I need to revisit that. Well, cool, awesome. So uh, there there are your three recommendations this week. Uh, but now it is time to uh, to arrive by train for the first time in four years to the bad day at Black Rock. Um, this is directed by John Sturgis. It is written by Don McGuire and Millard Kaufman, based on Howard Breslin's short story, Bad Time at Honda, um, which I found interesting that they really only changed the name because of a somewhat recent John Wayne film. Um, our cast. Here we go. This, this is a good cast. I like this cast. Uh, we got Spencer Tracy playing John McCready, Robert Ryan as Reno Smith, Dean Jagger as Sheriff Tim Horn, um, 
uh, Walter Brennan playing Doc Valet. Uh, we have Anne Francis and John Erickson playing Liz and Pete, respectively. They are brother and sister. And then the only other two that I wanted to shout out uh, are like the the two heavies. And and I God, I really do like them in this movie. Ernest Borgnine as Coley and um, Lee Marvin as Hector. Uh, if I left anybody out that you wanted to give a shout out to, please do so now. I think that pretty much covers the cast, but you said it, man. Like, when the opening credits roll, you're just like, this is going to be the best movie I've ever seen. Look who's in this. I mean, I think I knew that Ernest Borgnine was in this, but when I saw Lee Marvin, I got real happy. I got really excited when I saw Lee Marvin was in this. Well, well, and I also geeked out because you see their names and you think, oh, this is going to be great. But then to see them in the same shot together, and like, oh, they're like working together. This is going to be so good. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And what a year for Borgnine. This was the year that he won the Academy Award for uh, Marty. I was going to say, yeah, and, and he beat he beat Spencer Tracy at the Academy Awards for the Oscar. Um, and in fact, uh, jumping ahead a little bit here, but the, the three Oscars that Bad Day at Black Rock was up for, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay, all lost to Marty. Um, so... Uh, and something else I thought was interesting as I, as I was reviewing it this morning, um, that was a year where best picture and best director, only two films crossed over uh, from best picture it was Marty. And I think the, the Rose tattoo um, were the only two movies up for best picture also up for best director. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't like some of the, some other recent years where it's a pretty, like a perfect five for five or whatever. There was a, some, some split decisions there. Um, it was back in the days when great movies directed themselves. <laughs> yes <laughs> indeed um i always come uh, back to ridley scott's quote when he lost for gladiator when he said i don't know what they think i did on this film um going back to john sturgis for just a second he has two other films in the book uh one is gunfight at the ok corral which came out in 1957 and a film that i know was close to my friend's heart the great escape which came out in 1963 which i am now purposefully setting aside to watch until it comes out on criterion because i have not seen it and when it does based on ian's love alone i will buy it sight unseen and watch it <laughs> it is one of the 10 greatest films ever made and that is a hill it, that i will absolutely die on every day of the week all right i well i i, I won't i won't fight you on it that that's 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 your fight buddy and i, I love you for it um okay cool so yes yeah, so we talked about the oscars um at the baftas it was nominated for best film from any source and the UN Award, I, I'm not totally familiar with that one. Ian, do you know anything about that? No, this was uh, this was new to me. I'm going to assume because it's the UN, it's a film that to them must mean it has some sort of humanitarian merit. Yeah, which of course we'll dive into uh, uh, just in a few minutes when we talk about the plot of this movie. Um, this wasn't the award that um, Kaufman got from the Japanese government. This is a different award, right? Yeah, that was a different award. Yeah. Okay, maybe maybe you were leading to that. Maybe I'm jumping the gun. Oh no no no! That's I I we can bring that up now. I know year. I think it was a. I don't know if it was that year or, or years later, but um, Kaufman was awarded um a, a, a something from the Japanese. Oh God, who? Oh man, who gave him that award? Um, it was a humanitarian award. I want to say from a, a a Japanese organization um for a humanitarian effort, and he he understood. He kind of made a joke about well, I didn't really, I didn't do anything really, but he understood that just even making a movie that had a, a plot pivotal point referring to Japanese internment camps, uh, especially back then, probably wasn't a, a very frequent thing. So um, that was a, a cool thing to get after the fact. And um, uh, I, I was gonna, well, I'll, I'll bring it up now. I'll bring it up now. Um, uh, I know uh, that that the Japanese internment side um, of World War II doesn't get talked a lot, but I know in our neck of the woods up here in Puyallup, there actually was a pretty big Japanese internment camp um, during World War II, and it's a it's a especially for what I feel like is a pretty liberal corner of the country. It's it's a, it's it's interesting to have such a kind of a dark side to to the history of of the of the state with something as as you know horrible as that was. And of course, now I think it's the where it was is now the site of the big fairgrounds. It is. That is. I was. I, I didn't know if you knew that. I was hoping. I was hoping that my little my little bait that you would take it, and you did. And thank you. so Oh, much. my my in laws live down there in Puyallup, so I I drive by it every time I see him, and it just makes me cringe. Yeah, well, it's go, tough. going it's tough that has going to Puyallup in general makes me cringe, but that's another story. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's that's true. I I can't say I go down there very very much. Um, the film also picked up DGA and WG, WGA nominations. Uh, the National Board of Review put it in its top ten films of the year. And hey, Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? Yes, it was in 2018. Yes, very recently. Very recently, it was, and it seems like the the kind of film that would absolutely be inducted into the National Film Registry from and from from the research that I found apparently is a frequent viewed film uh, of presidents. Apparently, a lot of them watch this in the uh, presidential screening room. So, take the, that. The last award I would throw out is the uh, the Cannes Film Festival. Spencer Tracy won, but he oh, tied with uh, the entire cast of a film called A Big Family, a Russian film about uh, generations of uh, shipbuilders. Yes, I, I, I had that in my notes. I, I Which, went on my weird Puyallup tangent, and I just skipped it. But yes, you're absolutely right. It was, and it was up for the Palm Door, and yeah, you're right. He, he also won Best Actor. What a great ego boost. It takes like an entire cast to equal one Spencer Tracy. <laughs> I'd, I'd say that's fair. Well, I also like the, the, in, in the notes that I was reading that um, apparently uh, uh, Walter Brennan and... Um, Spencer Tracy did not get along very well. Spencer Tracy being more liberal than uh, a more conservative Walter Brennan. And apparently at the Oscar ceremony that year, when Walter Brennan walked past Spencer Tracy, he put up uh, three fingers, meaning the three Oscars that he had won versus the two that Spencer Tracy had won. Um, so apparently uh, no love lost between those two in, in, in regards to winning awards. <laughs> so I guess we'll just take that for what we will. Um, uh, Ian or Mike, um, any uh, any critical review things that you found that you wanted to, to shout out? I regrettably have nothing. No worries. Well, don't worry, man. We got your back with our old friend Bosley Crowther. I'm going to oh, assume yeah. you you pulled his as well. I mean, if he is alive at the time of a movie, I'm pulling his review. If for no other reason than then just say his name, and I and actually that's a great <laughs> that's a good point because this review is not very good. It is uh, uh, it is pretty much just who's in this movie and what it's about. Well, I know he gives away the ending in the second sentence. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't really know that I have anything specific that I want to 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 read from this because it really is just a. A, a synopsis of the plot and, and who was in it. So um, let's just let's just say that, hey, Bosley Crowther wrote a review for this movie that came out on February 2nd, 1955. And uh, I think maybe we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, that's fine. You can find it on uh, the New York Times archive. Yeah, yeah, it, it's easy enough to find. Um, this movie is not currently on the IMDb Top 250. Uh, at the moment, it has a 97% critical and 88% Rotten Tomato score. Um, so... Bad day at Black Rock. Here's the really, here's the five cent synopsis of the movie. Spencer Tracy plays John McCready, a man with one arm who comes into town to deliver a letter to the father of a son that he met uh, over in Italy who died. Um, uh, he gets in the town and he is immediately cold shouldered by everybody. We clearly get the vibe that there is a dark underbelly to the people in this town. We find out um, that uh, this Japanese man was uh, was killed uh, largely in due to uh, in part to uh, Reno Smith, who's played by Robert Ryan, who himself he himself could not get into the military because uh, well, actually I don't even know if they say why he wasn't. They didn't take him. They just didn't. Um, and if they did, you guys can both correct me. Anyways. So he gets drunk, he gets really pissed, and he goes up there and um, and kills this man. Um, and the whole town is kind of in on it. It's a secret that's buried until Spencer Tracy comes and, uh, uh, you know, kicks some ass and uh, basically gets the truth. And um, ultimately, we, we don't see the end. Or I should say that Reno's, Reno does not make it. And um, Spencer Tracy is kind of a hero at the end. And um, he, he leaves behind the medal that he was there to to give. And, you know, maybe maybe it won't be such a bad day at Black Rock after all. There's a really quick, shitty synopsis of the film. But, you know, I think I just want us to get into to talking about it. So um, I don't know. Where do we want to where do we want to launch off? Where do we want to go with this initial thoughts? So this was a first time watch for me. So yeah. I might have a yes. lizard brain on this one. <laughs> um, one. One thing I was really, really impressed with with Bad Day at Black Rock is the the selling point to it as you get in is that it's a, a contemporary Western, that it takes that trope of the 
the outsider who wanders into town and is cold-shouldered. The town has its own way of doing things, and this outsider represents a different code of ethics or whatever. But I was really impressed with how many other genres the movie really seemed to be borrowing from, but it didn't. It seemed to be balancing them all into something that was wholly unique to itself. Like it was, it was equal parts western. It also had a lot of film noir. It was a pretty engaging detective story. It even, um, to go back to the discussion Ian and I had on my show about Wicker Man, it kind of has elements of the horror genre down. This this whole thing of like it's really easy to get into town, but really hard to get out, and how well it closes the net around McCready I thought was so good and so I was just super impressed with how it was all at once it was a detective story a western it was kind of a horror movie it was a social justice movie it was really impressive that a movie could simultaneously pull off all of those influences in a brisk like 80 minutes yeah that's that's really what I wanted to drive at as well uh, right at the top of this episode is that it's almost a western by default it's a western it's accepted as a Western because of its setting, but it is so many other different genres. And that's the thing. This is my, my second watch of it. And I was just so bowled over the first time I saw it about six or seven years ago by the fact that it's that it's, it's a quick movie. I mean, it's what, 82, 83 minutes. It really zips along, but it, it's also got a great sort of slow burn and slow reveal of why McCready's there. And, I, I loved the, the sort of social justice commentary and the, the fact that it wasn't afraid, even even 10 years after the end of the war, it wasn't afraid to shine a light on the, the horrors of Japanese internment, even yeah, even from one remove. There, there was something I, I, I really, yeah, I found interesting about the, I, at one point I wrote, I'm, I'm 15 minutes in, I don't know anything, and I love it. And I think, it, and it's a, it's, a, it's a myriad of things that really help you know, make that possible. You know, you get lines like, you know, I'll only be here 24 hours. Oh, some places that seems like a lifetime. And there's already a lot of the fact that nobody's really talking to him. And that's the thing too, is it would be one thing if, you know, it was just, you know, Robert Ryan and Lee Marvin and, and, and crew just being standoffish and cold to him, but he's also not really divulging a lot of information himself. And that's that. And, and clearly he's, you know, he's favoring the one arm, you know, that other hand is in the pocket the entire time. And there's something that like, you know, nothing's really being explained. And, and, and some movies that can be, that just, that could just be poor writing. But in this one, all it does is make me more intrigued. And then you get, you hear things like Adobe flat and, Kamoko, and you're like, oh man, there's a like I don't know what any of these mean, but they sound interesting. You know, it's like it's it's what is the secret of of these things, and there's such a a weight given to them by the actors that it makes me more interested. Like, and sometimes westerns can be so subtle with with performances that it's like I I don't maybe I don't care more I I don't care as much as I should because they're really underplaying everything. But there's a there's a nice level of of seriousness given to to Adobe Flat and Kamoko that I think really helps tie us into the movie. Um, I I I'd like to talk about the uh, the opening shot a little bit. I realize that it's just a few seconds of screen time, but it it, it does two. It, I first of all, I just love how they did it. That they they couldn't practically fly a helicopter or a moving train, so they just they just shot it in reverse and then reversed and then and then you know with the with the helicopter flying away and then uh, uh ran it in reverse i think that's great and i i also just love any movie that also says that it was filmed in cinemascope there's just something oh, so yeah. nice and and classic about that and it, and it really uses it which is also impressive for a movie that's really about like one guy walking around while three others kind of coldly stare at him that it's i think it uses that cinemascope format especially in the shot that follows the train which i immediately fell in love with I can't think of a better way to set up like this town's day-to-day life than seeing the train pulling to a stop and there's seven buildings to the right side of it and there's one building to the left and then a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> I just I loved how long they lingered on that shot. It got me it got me so giddy cuz that's how you use a camera and your your cinemascope format that wide angle to tell the story of a town in one shot. It's such a dynamic way to bring us into this film. It really and it and also it sets the pace for the movie as well. Just how quick the uh, the the cuts are and how fast this train is moving. Yeah, I think I think the other time that I I really appreciate uh, almost non landscape shot, but it's uh it's later on in the movie and the the town is kind of the kind of gotten together to talk about what they're gonna do and um 
uh, uh, Robert Ryan and, and uh, Ernest Borgnine kind of pull away from the rest of the crew and they're talking and they're kind of talking over their shoulders. So we're not seeing them that they're not totally profile. And, but in the behind them is just mountains. And it, again, it's like, it's like putting these two men in the middle of nowhere. And it just, it just to kind of uh, further uh, um, to further agree with you, Mike, the, this idea of really they're, they're in the middle of nowhere and the, and, and this idea of easy to get there, hard to leave and, and what, and just seeing, these guys surrounded by mountains just it just it just furthers how how in the middle of nowhere they are and and how really how tricky it is going to be for Spencer Tracy to get out of there and this is before he's even his life has really been endangered or like, well no that's not true <laughs> he's been run off the road by by Borgnine by this point I think that is my my favorite shot in the film is that that profile shot of them stood there with their backs to us surrounded by the mountains there's also there's a shot very similar to that where there's a group of them stood at the railway crossroads while they're considering what to do about McCready and it's just framed so beautifully. And I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm not a John Sturgis guy. Like I don't know. I, I, this may also be the first John Sturgis movie I've seen. Wait, no, wait, hold on. <laughs> Did he do the dirty dozen? No, that was, uh, Well, if it's not John Sturges, it'll come to me. Um, it's not John so, Sturges. Okay. Well, then, so there you go. So this is also this is also the first John Sturges movie I've seen. So I don't know if that's something that he, um, if that's a a quality that he normally has. But yeah, I really the shot was framed really well. And another thing, so, something that was kind of ironic. Um, my Cinemus just did a show on the Terminator, and I was reading this critical essay on the Terminator, and they were talking about how tightly made it is. And he said, really, the only other movie I can think of that's so tightly packed is Bad Day at Black Rock. And I was like, oh, crazy. I'm going to go on 1001 by 1 and talk about that. So I was watching the movie looking at, like, is there fat? Is this movie really as lean and well put together as everyone says it is? And I really couldn't find a chink in the armor because even, like, the the shots that linger contribute to a mood. But the writing is also very succinct, but it's not overly simplistic or serialized. You know, there's... But it's also not overly artistic. And, and to couple that shot I love of like when the train first pulls into town with just the simple lines of everyone being like stopping, the train stopping. Like this this one line tells you like, oh, this must be a huge deal if they're surprised this train is stopping. And that goes further into establishing what the day-to-day life in Blackrock is. And then, um, yeah, that, that scene at the crossroads is, it's almost like, godfather-esque in like its subtlety and how everybody under everyone's on the same page about what they're talking about but no one wants to say anything out loud that there there is a common bond that they're you know this crime that they committed binds them together but they have to speak this language of secrets about anything now anytime an outsider comes in they have to play all their cards close to the chess and i love how the screenplay is written to both intrigue you, but also tip you off to what's going on so you can stay a little bit ahead of Spencer Tracy and know... I, I don't know about you guys, but I figured out like what the, the, the big secret was pretty early on, and that's not like a knock against the movie. I, I actually credited the screenwriter for laying out the subtle hints about what happens at Kokomo without needing to like spell it out and tell me um, before like the big reveal at the, at the hotel with Spencer Tracy. I don't know, did, Ian, obviously, it's your second time watching it, but was that something that happened to you guys? Did you have it figured out? Was this a mystery to you all the way up until the reveal? I, I think it was on the first viewing, and that's why, uh, not to, to jump into Unsung Heroes uh, too quickly, but I, I'm torn between my Unsung Heroes for uh, for either the writers or uh, the editor, uh, because as I, as I mentioned before, the pacing is just immaculate, and, I mean, the writing is, is subtle and and just it's got that great 50, 40s and 50s tit for tat dialogue which i just go cuckoo for uh especially in what i think is probably the best scene of the movie uh the the confrontation between borgnine and tracy where uh uh borgnine is very clearly goading him to try and get in a fight with him and uh and and borgnine questions him and and tracy responds with you're not only wrong you're wrong at the top of your lungs which i think is i probably the best line in the whole movie for me anyway it is, yeah, definitely. I yeah, and and it's really it's interesting. Um, 
because that scene is great too. And, and you know, the whole, you know, you're in my spot. Well, and then he moves and, or I, you know, <laughs> Spencer Tracy's like, I had a feeling you were going to say that. And he moves and I just, and yeah, there's such a great way at which Spencer Tracy handles the situation. You know, suppose you tell me where to sit and, and he's just continuing to try to one up him. Um, one bit of research I found that, that I thought was really funny um, is that the, uh, the production code administration at first objected to the use of karate <laughs> by calling it not fighting heroically and then apparently when they were reminded of the fact that the heroes only got one arm they were like oh okay i i guess we'll let that slide but the <laughs> fact that like karate is somehow not fighting heroically i found um a i found interesting but b also kind of like in keeping with part of the the, the theme of the movie that like why is it that using karate isn't fighting heroically but like what if he if he was just punching him that would be okay i didn't I don't know. And, and maybe that plays into the whole Japanese internment side of this. Like, why do we have to, why do we have to view Eastern traditions as something that's not quote unquote normal? I, even, even the, the, the research in the film I thought was, was pretty interesting. And apparently they also filmed this, um, on what used to be a, uh, a Japanese internment camp, which I think is, is, uh, maybe not at the time, but I think like in hindsight, I think a really smart choice to do that, to, to to give it some some more weight. Yeah, what was it called? The Manzanar internment camp. Yeah, so um I think that's I think that was a a good move to to really give this some some additional um relevance. Yeah. And you mentioned and, and, Oh, go ahead. Right. Go ahead, Mike. Nope, it's it's really nothing. Where you're going's give it better, I guarantee it. Oh, I was just going to say but Ian, you mentioned um uh, sh- shouting out the the screenplay writers and Don McGuire, who we uh, we just recently talked about Don McGuire That's on our right. Tootsie episode. Tootsie. Um, which, uh, as we're recording this, hasn't been released yet, but it's in there. It's it's in the bank. Um, so I, I I guess I wanted to know. Um, and this and I don't I I don't know that I have any any real thoughts on this, but how do we feel about the fact that Spencer Tracy's character only has one arm? Or one hand, like one hand that he can use. Sorry, let me clarify that. Well, I think it was a bit of a cop-out. They originally wanted him not to use a Zippo, even though that's... Tracy made the argument for, well, a lot of the the guys in the military do use it, so that's what I'm going to do, so I don't have to learn how to strike a match with with one hand. Um, But I... I I love the the subtlety of the reveal that he only has. We we have no idea what he's got in his pocket. I mean, he, he... he could be hiding something. I, I love that it's a slow reveal that he's only one-handed. And uh, it, it makes the fight feel a little... stay, Even though he is using karate, which I do appreciate, and in keeping, like you said, with the themes of, of Japanese culture, it does make the fight feel a little dated and, and stagey. But uh, what the, uh, the, the reason for it, I believe, is they, they rewrote him. They, they rewrote the character to only have one hand because apparently no actor can turn down playing a character with some sort of disability or, or hindrance. And uh, you, as an actor, Adam, do you do you identify with that? Okay, here's what I'll say. There is something about, like, it, it, it can be hard to give yourself um, an interesting challenge as an actor if you're playing a quote-unquote normal character. And, and just somebody who, like... It's just a, a regular guy doing regular things. Um, it can be interesting and, and, and a challenge to play somebody that is very much unlike you. And I know that as an actor, I, I do enjoy any character that I get to play that is far away from me because then I find it to be uh, more of a challenge and, and I get to actually I get to do more acting than just kind of being myself. Um, I, I don't know that I can say that like I'm desperately eager to play somebody who has one arm, but I do think like, you know, I think part of the the fun, like let's say, let's just take Richard the third as a character. Part of the, the reason to play him is because he's such an interesting, evil, crazy character, but also it's because he has physical impairments. And so how you choose to play that is up to you, but he does have some, some physical limitations. And I think it's, it's the, it's the, the psychological character creation and then also the physical character creation. And I, I do think that I don't know that I could say that it's impossible to resist, but I do think it makes it more interesting for me. It's I'm, I'm kind of like neutral about it because there's nothing about it. I 
dislike or don't see the point but I, I can very much see that its inclusion in the script is is either to draw Tracy in with like oh you get to play a character who can only use one arm and I think it's also used as uh, a kind of a tension building device that when Spencer Tracy gets in, into trouble he's at even more of a disadvantage he's not only an outsider he only has the use of one arm so I think it's something that is kind of mined for tension's sake I, I think that maybe on an artistic level they mean it to give him an excuse to take the more nobler route, to be more diplomatic, to not resort to violence. But I, I wouldn't buy that argument because that is so much of like who his character is anyway. I don't necessarily feel that he's cool-headed because he only has the use of one arm. I think that's who he is as a character. Um, so at the end of the day, it's like, I don't know that the movie would be incredibly different without that, but it doesn't bother me it's something that does make him interesting it, it, it almost feels more like a red herring I, I know this is a movie that came out way after Bad Day at Black Rock but it reminded me of um, Sergio Corbucci's Django the spaghetti western where a man rolls into town dragging a coffin and a big deal is what's in the coffin and I, I'm glad Bad Day at Black Rock didn't do this but I kept waiting for the reveal that he has the use of his left hand that he's waiting for when he gets really into trouble and then he'll whip out a pistol or something. I, I was worried that's where uh, the movie was going, so I thought it was a red herring that that was just another part of the mystery is, like, what's he got in his pocket? What's he holding on to? I wondered but, if it was the um, the metal, that he'd constantly been holding the metal the whole time, and then it kind of just goes nowhere. Like, no, he just doesn't have use of that arm. Yeah, I would... I can safely say I would, I would have been disappointed to find out that he actually had two hands at, at yes, that point. that would have been and, very cheap. But to to kind of go back to what Ian said about the the the, the match versus the Zippo, um, and I agree that he probably I mean you know he probably could have just learned to do it. He did. I found it really impressive the way that he kind of, you know, put together that Molotov cocktail at the end with just one hand. That's that's, that's where I was going. That's the flip side to me talking shit about him not learning to strike a match one handed. It is goddamn impressive the way he makes that Molotov at the end. And man, the way and I like I. It, we we know what's coming, right? Like Robert Ryan doesn't, because he's he's coming down the the little cliffside there, and we can see what what Spencer Tracy is doing. But like when that thing explodes off the rock when he throws it, I, I genuinely was like, whoa, <laughs> he just burned that guy. And I this movie hadn't been too too violent up until that point, but I I, I was like, wow, they just burned that guy. <laughs> The movie has a couple moments like that, and I'll I'll get more into it because I picked uh, an unsung hero. But I was really surprised by that as well to be like, wow, they really like went for it. And there's a couple other moments like when Ernest Borgnine gets thrown through the door. I was like, I'm pretty sure that was actually Ernest Borgnine that he just threw through the door. Oh, did you did you read? I that was that was absolutely Ernest Borgnine. Um, mm-hmm. And apparently, I I, wonder, I don't want to misread this because I I thought this was uh, so okay. I'm just gonna read this verbatim. Oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so Ernest Borgnine did the crash to the door himself, expecting it to swing open as he sailed through it into the street. But without the actor's knowledge, John Sturgis nailed the door shut. The momentum ripped it, fr- ripped it from its hinges, and it ended up hanging on the understandably shocked Borgnine like a picture frame, which provided the desired natural reaction from the actor. Borgnine has never forgiven me for that, Sturgis recalled. So, yeah, definitely, I definitely wanted to bring that up. And I appreciate it because Borgnine is not a small fella and he just he just let himself go through that door. I was I was mightily impressed. As somebody who likes stage combat when I when I can do it, I thought that was I thought that was great. Um can we talk about Robert Ryan for a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. Because uh, Ian, you know, I, I'm i I'm almost with you. You said they think the best scene is that confrontation in the diner between Spencer Tracy and Borgnine. That that one's really good. I I think scene of the movie is the gas station talk that Spencer Tracy and Robert Ryan had because Robert Ryan always registers as a threat. He's very obviously the puppet master of this town, but in that gas station conversation where he is trying to go toe-to-toe with Spencer Tracy and trying to keep his cool and failing because you can see his anger bubbling to the surface and you can constantly see him like trying to shove it back down there to prove he's as big as whatever gets him mad. I thought that was great, and I think it's crazy that Robert Ryan didn't get a supporting actor nomination. Well, we occasionally talk about 
actors with the uh, the thankless role, and I think Robert Ryan definitely makes the best case for that. That is a, a, a great scene and, and comes back to my talking about that sort of tit-for-tat dialogue. I love what he says yeah. about the West. He says, somebody's always looking for something in this part of the West. To the historians, it's the Old West. To the book writer, yes. it's the Wild yes. West. But to the businessman, it's the undeveloped West. It's they say we're all poor West. and backward, and I guess we are. We don't even have enough water, but to us, this place is our West, and I wish they'd leave us alone. Great, was, great piece of yeah. dialogue. There you go. Yes. Yeah, and, I I totally agree, and it's it's great. I feel like in a uh, I don't, I'm I'm kind of glad we're we're going on this on this route because, um, I, as much as I love the diner scene with Borgnine, and as much as I love that scene at the gas station, I also really really liked the first back and forth between Lee Marvin and Spencer Tracy when Lee Marvin is waiting for Spencer Tracy in his hotel room right there at the early at the the beginning part of the movie. There's this trying to you know Lee Marvin's trying to to in a way kind of scare him and and Spencer Tracy just isn't isn't having it and and he I just really really liked how how the dialogue was handled um in in, in this movie uh when it could I, I feel like and I, maybe that's the problem of 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 associating this as a western because I don't I don't always find the dialogue in westerns all that great but I do tend to find the dialogue in noir really interesting and fascinating and that's where I think this movie and we, you know, kind of blending genres. I think it, it succeeds in that way because having them do this pitter patter tit for tat dialogue in the middle of nowhere, it like it's a clashing of the senses, and it, it really makes you pay more attention. And I, I definitely appreciated that about the movie. Yeah. And and that's where I was talking about earlier that the movie's like blending so many genres because the. The way to be cool in a Western is to be silent. So the way to do that in a more conventional Western is Spencer Tracy just doesn't say anything. So he still has that cool, distant veneer of, like, the heroic gunslinger that strolls into town. But he also gets, like, the Humphrey Bogart, Philip Marlowe-esque tit-a-tat, like, the, the um, rapport. And I, I really like in that scene, too, that Lee Marvin keeps his cool pretty good in that scene. But as soon as he comes down the stairs, he's kind of shaken. He's like, you can't, you can't blow him over, not that one. He's different. <laughs> I also love that apparently Lee Marvin does not know how to tuck in a shirt. He seems to consistently struggle with that through the movie. I don't know if you've noticed, but like there are times where he tries to tuck in the front and like the back is wide out or he's tucking in the back and the front isn't in. That's a stupid thing to bring up, but I constantly noticed him not knowing quite how to tuck in his shirt. Yeah, that did stand out to me in the last hotel scene. It's that his shirt is like way out the back. And while we're on Lee Marvin, I mean, I think it was, we talked about this a little bit in our, our Tootsie episode, as you could tell from this tiny role that Gina Davis has in that, you knew she was going to be a movie star. And I don't know that we can quite say that Lee Marvin was a quote-unquote movie star because he did make a lot of interesting choices over his career. And he did, I think, strike a pretty decent balance between being a movie star and still retaining some of that character actor aesthetic but i think it's it's very clear from this one role that he was going to be you know bigger than than he appeared to be at first i mean this was such a great year for both him and borgnine they both did six or seven movies apiece and a couple episodes of tv and lee marvin and borgnine i don't think we can say enough about either of them they just both absolutely shine in this oh well for sure and, 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 and I think that's why, and I think Mike brought up a good point with talking about Robert Ryan because, you know, and I would say Spencer Tracy is playing it pretty straight, but he does have an, you know, he's, he's our lead and he gets a kind of an interesting bit of, of, of characterization with the one arm thing, but you know, like doc and the sheriff and Borgnine and Lee Marvin, and even like the, the sister, they've all got pretty, pretty clear characteristics. They're all. They're all, and I don't mean this in the bad way. They're all kind of going for it, you know. They're definitely playing at times, kind of caricatures of 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 these people. And I I don't mean that as a bad thing, but that's just they've all got these pretty clear characteristics that that they're going for. And Robert Ryan is pretty pretty subtle throughout it. Like, and even in his menacing at his most menacing, like before the shootout at the end, he's still playing it pretty straight and but doing it very compellingly. And it's great that he's, he's able to still kind of stand out by not standing out. If that makes any sense. Well, you know? no, he's, he's not a mustache twirling bad guy. I mean, he is, he's, yeah. he does the, the great thing that all actors should do when they are playing quote unquote bad guys is that he believes he's in the right. 
Yes. And I think that, again, that comes back to the, to the writing, you know, he, you know, he believes that, you know, and I'm, I, where's the line? And, and, you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm, I'm quoting the movie. So, you know, please don't, don't hate me. But I believe at one point he calls Kamoko that lousy Jap farmer. And he, he really takes, and, and, and I, and this is again this is part of the point i think the movie is trying to make make clear which is that you know what happens to komoko is the unfortunate correlation between who komoko is and the fact that he's japanese and then what happens at pearl harbor and you know the fact that that um reno goes goes ahead and does what he does there's no excuse for it but he's so committed to his cause and his mind that he of course he doesn't see what he did as wrong you know in fact i think he even he well he doesn't say it's patriotic but he says he got patriotic drunk and i think that's sort of like this this excuse this this rational you know this way that he is trying to make this seem okay in his mind and and, and just supporting your thought ian that of course, of course, he's not the villain because he had a reason for doing what he did. And and this draws on like everything you've said about how he is subtle about it, that he doesn't make like a straight, easy bad guy power play, how he believes he's in the right. The thing I find most interesting ideologically about the movie is that speech that Ian quoted about how the West is different things to different people and that um, Reno Smith's most despicable fault is his corruption of the American dream that in his mind he's trying to go to a place where there's so few people to care about anything he can do whatever he wants that to some people the American dream and liberty means no one can tell me what I do is right or wrong that I get to decide what is lawful and what isn't and so that that is what makes him despicable and that's what makes his control over the town so terrifying is that he's tr- he's trying to find a place so isolated that no one cares about, that nobody stops at, where he can just have rule over everything and not answer to any sort of history. He can pick the bits of history he wants to be patriotic, and he can follow his own desires in other ways. That's hey man, that's that's right on. I dig it. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't dig that character, but I I dig that analysis. Yeah. And in a way it's, 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 it's interesting because it seems like, you know, and obviously, you know, we're trying to remember when this, when this movie was set and how there were, there was legit, you know, parts of the country that really hadn't been developed yet. And that there were areas like Black Rock where, you know, there really weren't a whole lot of people. And I get that there are still small towns, but it's, it's harder and harder to find a place that isn't that, that as, that is as inhabited as this mm-hmm. place. And, and it's like, I feel like now you've got to go, it's it's like Alaska, or you're you know you're getting you know way way out of of you know like because they're in Black Rock is theoretically in is it Arizona or California? California, I think. Okay, um, so there's something like just like even it's hard for it's hard for me to break you know my 2020 mind because even even though I know that this place is in the middle of nowhere, I'm like, well, this is still California. You you know you're not theoretically too far from 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 habitants, but. It, you know, it just makes me wonder if there's a place, and I'm sure there is, but a, a place like Black Rock now where, you know, it's a small town and this small town, it's everybody's very like-minded and, and you know, it's any outsider coming in is going to, it's going to draw focus and, and definitely you know, Spencer Tracy coming to this town draws a whole lot of focus. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that helps the movie's longevity is this idea transcends like physical location that even if it's not a small town or you know, this, this could be anywhere. This, this Wild West mentality, this Old West mentality exists everywhere. It exists in urban areas. Like the Western is our mythology as Americans. And this kind of idea of a territory where we are masters of our own fate still exists everywhere. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that helps to, to keep the film timeless even though it is very much a, a post-World War II story. And I, coming back to characterization and story, I think, we've, I think we've hammered home the fact, do we all agree that the writers are the unsung heroes of this film? I can stand by that. Yeah, they're not, they're not like my big pick, but yeah, I'll, I'll back them up for sure. Part of me was, I mean, I think performance-wise, I, I, 
It's tough to give it to Borgnine because he obviously won the Oscar that year, but I really like what he's doing in the movie. And I like that at times he kind of plays the mustache twirling guy, you know, like at at the diner and, and in the car. But like that conversation that he has with um with Robert Ryan, it's like he gets to he gets to turn it down and be a little more serious. And I, I just like what he's doing. But I think I I'm 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 comfortable with giving it to the screenwriters. I really do like the dialogue in this movie a whole lot. Of of the three Oscars it was up for, if we were going to give it one, I would definitely give it to the screenplay. Ooh, that's a good one. I think not not having not not being able to say how I because I've I I'll, I'll be I've not seen Marty, so I don't know that I can yeah, can. I guess I haven't either. So I I've Withdrawn. seen it I've seen it once, uh, ten maybe even longer maybe fifteen years ago, and I will say even though Borgnine is spectacular in it, the story itself is slightly underwhelming. And it is a hell of a lot more dated than this. Yeah, yeah, I can, I kind of, I well, feel like I can get that, but well, and especially, and again, I, I'm, I can't, I haven't seen Marty, so I can't like compare the two. But how we talked about how the movie still plays, but how prophetic it, it seems to be, because a lot of the scenarios that the movie draws tension from seem to predict a lot of issues in the civil rights movement in the next decade. That it becomes this. Malcolm X, Martin Luther King tangle between like, what is the right thing to do? Is the right thing to do to stand up, be militant, fight oppression? Is the right thing to do to be the more nobler person and withstand um, oppression and prove like you are better than the people who are persecuting you? I, I think that that is another thing that, again, really sadly still exists today. But I think that's what really helps Spencer Tracy's performance a lot is like he gets to be like the really really noble guy in terms of like a following the western archetypes he doesn't quite totally fit the model of like the stranger who rolls in and out of town because usually at the end of a western the outsider has to leave because he's restored balance to the town but he has to leave because he operates in a morally ambiguous area that can exist in like the straight-laced law and order he is brought to this town on the fringes of existence but in bad day at black rock that's exactly what spencer tracy embodies embodies he's great through and through he's the underdog he stands for truth he stands for justice he stands for retribution in a very righteous way and then he just kind of leaves because it was the plan all along it's not because he he's a he at the end of the day he's a violent person you know he he spends the whole movie not being a violent person yeah that's i don't remember what got me off on that tangent no no that's that's really great commentary i think it is important that we hammer home just how timeless it is it's great that you bring up the civil rights and what's going on i don't want to get too political but what's going on in the country today with unrivaled unbridled sort of patriotism and and sort of right-minded thinking coming back to the forefront uh, i'd say right-minded as in you know to the right not as in it is right but it's it is important to to note that this film i think will live on because of those themes and because of what we face in our day-to-day lives well and unfortunately it just it it just reinforces this idea that history repeats itself and i there's a there's a small tangent i want to go and i remember um this must have been you know no more than a few months after 9-11 and I was at my my aunt's house and I was walking down the street um uh because I was going I was going to 7-eleven I wanted to get I wanted to get a slurpee because that's what you when you're a teenager that's what you do yeah and uh the guy behind the guy behind the counter was was Middle Eastern I could not have told you where he was from but he definitely was and there was a, a lady in front of me who was buying something um I don't know what I, I don't remember but she gave him a five and she had like you know a couple bucks coming back to her and she looked at him holding her money and then she looked at him in the eyes and walked away. She refused to take her own money back from this guy because he was holding it. And I think part of the reason why this movie will live on is because the way that we respond to, to tragedy is sometimes to find the quickest and easiest scapegoat. And, you know, in, in world war, in, in World War II, after Pearl Harbor, it was so it was so quick and so easy and justified for us to just say all Japanese bad. You go to internment camp, and the way that a lot of a lot of Americans at large responded to people of Middle Eastern descent after 9/11 was justified quickly as patriotism. And and so there's and you know and unfortunately it we're, I, I'm sure we're not too far from the next thing like that. 
Oh, we're living in it now, man, with the uh, COVID-19. There is a lot of uh, unjustified hatred being thrown at Asian Americans, which is, is really heartbreaking to see. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I yeah, I feel, yeah, a movie like this, it, it's just, it, you know, it, it even though this is specifically about World War II and, and the Japanese, you know, you, you change the war, you change the, the, the ethnicity or the, or the type of people, and, and you've got yourself the same story, you know. Sorry, that kind of got dark there. I no, didn't, I didn't. I, no, that's, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's where it's got to go. Movie. And it's, it's interesting to me what you were saying, Adam. I really, I, I haven't looked it up at all, but I wonder if those projectionist records at the White House are like public information, because I'd love to see like what's getting watched, like administration to administration. It's so interesting to me that this is one of the most screened movies because it's, it's all at once. It, it follows this Western tradition of like, this is America. This is like what we stand for, what we're built on. And then at the same time, it's critiquing that same system so much that I'm, I'm just so fascinated that this is like one of the most watched movies in the white house. Well, I think, I think it's not, it's not hard to understand why, especially with given Spencer Tracy's performance and the turn the other cheek nature that he takes in the film and, and what it says about uh, our sort of, gut reaction prejudices when we are faced with tragedy i think it's it's very clear and easy to see that i i do think this should be required viewing for presidents especially like for the one we have now <laughs> that's that's a podcast to start is like the musty movies for presidents <laughs> There we go. I think oh, I think man. we've got a uh, I think we've got a sub show there, uh, a sort of sister yeah sister podcast we can start. <laughs> We're taking it to the streets and taking it to the administration, man. Yes, yes, yes. It's a grassroots organization thing we got going here. It's not. It's not, Mr. President. It's not, Mr. President. Tear down this wall. It's, Mr. President. Watch this goddamn movie. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have, I have much more to say, um, specifically. Um, I feel like we really touched on the, the big things that I wanted to get out. Well, I do have, uh, another pairing. I mean, it's, it's, a obviously I, I paired Dead Man's Shoes with this film, but there is a, a film that I was thinking about in my research. I don't know if either of you have seen this. It's from about, uh, 2013 or 2014 with, uh, Colin Firth, Nicole Kidman, and Stellan Skarsgård. It's called The Railway Man. And it's about a, uh, a, a British, I believe he's either a captain or a lieutenant. He's some kind of officer. And he was a man that was uh, over in um, in the, the Pacific uh, side of the war. It's kind of like a, the, a semi, it's not a sequel to Bridge on the River Kwai, but it almost feels like a follow-up to that story where you have this officer that was involved in, in building the bridge on the River Kwai and uh, the torture and uh, neglect that he received at the hands of a specific Japanese officer. And it's about him finding out, you know, years after the fact that, oh, this guy is still alive and I need to go confront him about the way that I was treated back in the day. I think that this film would make a, an excellent pairing with uh, Bad Day at Black Rock. Anyway, that's called uh, The Railway Man. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even know. Yeah, I that that I'd never even heard of that movie, and it's clearly got some some great actors in it. So, yeah, definitely have to give that a a, a shot. Mike, do you have any other um, kind of parting thoughts on Bad Day at Black Rock? No, again, seeing this is my first time viewing. I think that's like as as deep as I can go right now. But I I just wanted to thank you guys. I jumped on this just because I love westerns so much. I've guested on a lot of other podcasts talking westerns, so I was really excited for this one. But um, there was a lot of hype around it and I feel that it lived up to it. So I want like, thanks for giving me the excuse to watch it. I'm really excited to watch it again. Hopefully do a cinema episode on it sometime to go a little deeper, but right now this is all I got. Sounds good. So then I think, I think we're at that point in the episode. Uh, and Mike, if you don't mind, we'll start with you. Um, do you believe that bad day at black rock should be in the book? Absolutely. Yeah. Ian, what about you? I, I absolutely 100% do agree that this should be in the book, and not only should it be in the book, if we're to pare the book down further and say there is, a, say, a shorter list, 100 or 50, that are required viewing, this is definitely on that list as well. 
Ooh, I, now I, I'm going to say it should be in the book. I don't know if I could agree as adamantly as you just did, but I do think it should be in the book. Um, but yeah, and do and it, it's great. It is one of those movies that you know you can look at it for its cinematic values. You can look at it for the performances, but it also, um, like a few movies that we've discussed so far in this pod, has something much bigger to say. And in that way, I kind of equate it to like an I Daniel Blake. Like there's definitely a message. There's a, something to take home with you when you're done watching this movie. And it's great. It's great when a movie can be entertaining. It's great when a movie can be inspiring. And it's great when a movie can incite change. And in a, in a real way, this should. You know, we should be able to to look past petty issues and 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 really, you know, cling together as a country before, you know, we get more divisive. Absolutely. And the last thing that I would do, I believe this film was originally made by MGM. It now uh, lies in uh, Warner Brothers hands and it has been released on Blu-ray as part of their archive collection. But uh, it is sadly looking a little worse for wear even on Blu-ray. So I would implore Warner Brothers to to take the extra steps and to give this thing a proper 4K restoration and, and treat it with the respect that it deserves. And that is that is Ian with his restoration corner uh this will be a new segment on the pod because i think him more than anybody else i know in my life talks about the quality of him and i love oh, that no love picture that. picture quality is is all important man film is I, uh, a visual is. medium I, and so we we should care about the the restorations and and picture and sound quality i mean i'm i'm in scorsese's corner 100 percent, and the the fabulous work that he's done in in keeping older films uh, letter, lesser seen films alive and, and in good quality. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, well, I think there you, there you have it. There's three yeses that this movie should absolutely be in the book. But of course, we want to know what you think. So hit us up on Facebook and on Twitter and let us know if you've seen it, if you haven't, what you think about it, where this stands in the pantheon of Western noirs or whatever whatever we want to call it. Um, you can listen to us on Spotify and Google Play and Stitcher and all those great places. Um, Mike, thank you again so much for coming on the show. Um, and please check out Cinemusts. Oh, thanks, guys. It was a great time. Yeah, no, we loved having you, man. We'd love to have you again. Oh Deal. yeah, we we'll, we'll get you back on. We will definitely get you back on. Sorry, sorry for the gruff exterior I put on when I was first introduced. You guys have won me over to your side. Well, <laughs> flattery will get you nowhere. <laughs> uh, so, Mike, you th- uh, Mike, thank you again for coming on, and uh, please stick around next week as we um, we get to our first Jean Luc Godard film. Um, my my first ever, uh, and so I'm excited to to stumble into that world. And until then. I'm Adam. And I'm Ian. And we will see you next week. 